Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Peter Alagona, who is the author of The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. I'm so excited about this interview. Urban wildlife is one of my favorite topics, and we don't get into it as much as I would like us to on our henhouse, but today we are. Yeah, no, I I am always fascinated by interviews about urban wildlife as well. And as you can tell from the title of the book, he takes this really interesting approach, the accidental ecosystem, that, that the urban habitats are actually ecosystems, and they're not, the animals just don't, end up there in some horrible, miserable way that that they don't belong there. They're actually making a life there, a lot of different kinds of animals. And we all can, you know, have noticed that that's true. The stories, you know, years ago, there were no stories of coyotes in the middle of Manhattan. It's changing and animals are just adapting as they always do to the mess we have made and they saying, well, some of this actually works for us. So we're going to find out what works for us anyway. I'm encapsulating uh, the ideas, uh, which are pretty complex and which we get into into the interview. And I really loved it. Yeah, I can't wait. Very cool. So how are you feeling, by the way? Uh, you know, <laughs> why do you ask? I'm, I'm getting much better. I'm getting much better. Every day my knee gets better. I had knee surgery recently for those who have not been listening to every episode. And, and, and it's taking a hell of a lot longer than I thought it would to get better, but it's getting there. I think, I think. But you have been having some exciting developments in your life. Tell us, you have a new job. Well, in addition... One of, one of your 10 billion jobs. You never have just one job. In addition to having two knees that I was born with, I... I well, that's kind of snotty. <laughs> well, it's kind of snotty. You know, I never, <laughs> Do I belong to some second class that has no, like I, knee, a knee I wasn't born with? Sorry, you know what? I think it's like... It's like superhuman of you. It's like, yeah, yeah, right. Like, and bionic. You are. Well, I, yes, I have another, another addition to the media company that I started earlier this year. And it's pretty exciting. I was waiting to make this announcement, but since I started training, I will say that I am training to be the host of Weekend Edition for. NPR's affiliate here in Rochester, WXXI. So I will be the weekend host as well as a reporter. And it's pretty cool. I have to say I'm so fancy. You're so fancy. It's I I finally wrote about it today on my Substack and I posted it to social media and I'm like kind of wanting to hide in a bag or something. And I don't know why. Like I'm very excited about this. I can't totally figure out why I'm like nervous to tell people. Well, because you're, that's exactly what you're always like. I don't know why you're surprised. You're always, uh, look at me. No, don't, don't look at me. Look at me. Come on, look at me. No, no, don't look at me. That's your whole repertoire. Got it. Well, it's also like very outside of my comfort zone because it is the being in front of a mic is not outside of my comfort zone, but the whole technical side of it, which is what I'm learning, because I have to run the master control myself. And also my shifts on the weekends will start before 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I know. And so, you know, there's a lot to learn. And also I'll be editing my own my own segments as well. And so I'm learning a new editing software called Audition. And... Yes, I'm doing it in addition to all the other things I'm doing. But for those of you who are concerned about me, don't be. I'm very, very good. 
at managing my time and making sure that I'm taking time off. I, I don't plan to ever see you again. That's not true. I'm, I'm crossing you true. off my list of possible entertainment venues. I see. No, I'm I'm going to be right there with you on your radio. <laughs> no, I will be hanging <laughs> out with you in person, even if you don't want me to be. So I will keep people posted. I probably start airing in in early in the new year in January, probably. But you know, we're we're figuring it all out right now, and it's just like a wonderful group of people. I do have something kind of funny to tell you. I was putting together a you know what they call a spot today, which is just like the mini report, basically that you hear. Spot is that like radio lingo? Yes, it, it, and it basically is just the the like minute long report that you'll hear on NPR, for example. And I, I I decided to do this. I wasn't assigned to do this, but I was learning all of these like amorphous things that I needed to put it into action. And so the story that I like fake covered was based on something that's really been going on in Rochester, which is that there have been animal rights activists protesting at Wegmans, which is our grocery store, because Wegmans has been getting, it's been supplying its turkeys from Fairlane Farms, which is a pretty horrific place that has been, uh, that, that was part of an undercover investigation. And there were all of these animal cruelty allegations, including like six felonies. And so anyway, I wrote a fake report on that. And then I, I texted more and I was like, can you send me an audio file recording this. And I made her like the organizer (laughs) in my fake report. It was just kind of fun, you know, I guess. You're going to get fired for only covering animal rights stories. I can see it right now. Uh, Maybe, but no, I'm not. I will cover, you know, vegan stories also. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway, so there we are. And that's my big news. So yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty big. I'm not going to deny it. Also, some big news out of out of Washington this week. Uh, I just think that we should mention this. We don't always cover legislation, but there's this article in Vox about Senator Cory Booker's uh, new new bill. And there have been a lot of organizations within the animal rights movement who have been working together on this. And of course, it's a bill in Congress, so it's not going to be everything everybody wants. But I think some of this is a really cool idea. And it it would basically require large meat and egg producers to plan for and pay more, not everything, but more toward disaster response. Because we all know that disaster is just built into this business. And, you know, we're the ones who pay for it all. As this article in Vox discusses, which is by Marina Bolotnikova and Kenny Torella, both of whom have been on uh, the podcast. The cheapest thing to do with animals during the, the pandemic was, of course, to kill them. As this says, call them industry jargon for deliberately kill using these horrible, horrible methods. And, you know, guess who paid for it? You did. The federal government then compensated the producers for 80% of each animal's market price, plus the cost of killing them, the cost of disposing of them. You know, it was also really dangerous for people. This bill also includes measures to prevent injuries to animals and workers, such as ending slaughter line speed increases and banning the use of prison labor. Uh, And what's been going on this year, it started with COVID, but then there's been the bird flu outbreak. And as we all know, just millions and millions of birds have been killed in the most horrible way. And, And this wouldn't this wouldn't cover it completely. You know, I guess that would be unrealistic, but it would set up an office in, in the Department of Agriculture to collect fees from, from these large meat producers to pay for 
quote unquote, more humane culling methods, whatever that is. I mean, you could, they couldn't be less humane, that's for sure. And it would require them to pay for costs associated with, with getting rid of the carcasses and cleaning up affected sites. And, you know, I know that doesn't sound like much, but right now we're paying for it and they should have to pay for everything. They shouldn't be doing it at all. But, you know, this is a big, it would be a huge step forward. This bill actually is, as this article points out, a huge lift, you know, the chances of them being able to pass it, given the strength of the factory farm industry is uh, is slim. It would also require factory farm operators to submit disaster preparedness plans. Imagine that. You have millions of animals uh, in your care. You don't have to have a disaster preparedness plan. And plan for alternative places for their animals to be kept in the event of a similar bottleneck at slaughterhouses as there was during COVID. And, and when, when they are killed, that wouldn't necessarily be done using taxpayer money and ventilation shutdown. The method they've been using, which of course we've covered in the past, would be restricted and other methods would be restricted and there would be some new protections for, for workers, for contract workers. And I guess that's enough to cover of all the things this bill does and the chances of it passing intact or of it passing at all, I guess, aren't huge. But I think it's actually an approach that that could appeal to to more people than some of the things that have been done in the past. So nice to see some action going on at the federal level. Nice to see us driving them a little bit crazy. Yeah, no, it, it's great. And great coverage, as always, by Vox. Something else that we've been reading about lately was covered by the New York Times. It's this story called Earth Now Has 8 Billion Humans. This man wishes there were none. And I'm a little nervous that this is going to get us in trouble with our listeners, but <laughs> oh we're going there anyway. Let me, I know. Off, let me start off by saying that though the article doesn't mention it, we did a, like one second of research and this guy who they're talking about in this piece last night is vegan and he is also very committed to eco-friendly living, but that's not what the article is about. Well, sort of it is, actually. He's the founder of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, and his motto is, may we live long and die out. <laughs> I know. It's, I have to say, all right, uh, don't get mad at me, but it does really appeal to me. Like, like his point isn't that humans are terror. And he's a very, what, what I think is so cool about him, you know, everybody's always like criticizing him and saying this, but he seems just like the nicest guy. And he, he's very happy. Like, He's just a happy guy. He decided this. He's 75 now, and he decided to do this a long time ago uh, when he was in his 20s and decided not to have any children. And And it's kind of just a loose consortium of people who agree with him. And they made, they deliberately changed it from the extinction movement to the voluntary extinction movement because they, they didn't want people to think that they were encouraging suicide or or uh, or killing more people. No, they just think we should all live a really good life and then, you know, adios and, and leave the world alone. And the article points out that this would be a good place to start, that nearly half of all pregnancies worldwide are unintended. So we could at least start, you know, not, not having those. And as he said, look what we did to this planet. We're not a good species. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a real point. I love this article. And I I think I might have even found it before you, which never happens. And I sent it yeah, to you. Yeah, I think you did. I think it you told me about basically it. Basically about you. Like I was like, oh my God, 
Marianne has a, another soulmate in this world. I, I don't often like, I mean, I guess I am like him in the sense that he, he ends the article saying he doesn't really expect to succeed. That's the secret to not burning out. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to actually chat with you about. So just to reiterate what you just said, yes, he says, I never expected to succeed. I think that's the secret to not burning out. And, you know, interesting also that they ended the article with this. I was thinking about it vis-a-vis like other types of activism or animal activism. And like, I, I, I'm struggling with figuring out whether this kind of mindset can be plugged into animal rights activism. I kind of don't really think it can, but I wonder what you think. I wish that I could, I mean, he's just like, got a, you know, a good personality that he can stay cheerful in the face of, of hideousness. Like, I don't know how you do animal activism. You may not expect to succeed, but you have to really, really want to succeed because it's so based on being aware of the horrific suffering. Not that he isn't, he isn't, but somehow, you know, I'm going to try to use him as an inspiration. Like, I don't think being miserable is helping anybody. And it's hard not to be miserable for all of us sometimes, I think. But Sometimes, you know, maybe we can tap into a little of this lightheartedness. Can I pull out one other quote that I liked? People mention music and art and literature and the great things that we have done. It's funny. They don't ever mention the bad things we've done. I don't think the whales will miss our songs. <laughs> I, it is so good. It's true. So good. I mean, of course, humans, have, uh, some humans are remarkable, just remarkable and have done unbelievable things. But yeah, most of them, most of us. Eh. He doesn't like to push his beliefs on people, but he likes to think that there are some humans who don't exist because of his efforts. <laughs> that is a proud legacy. <laughs> That's also something that can be directly related to animal rights, I think, because, you know, it's hard sometimes to count our victories. That's why we need to sort of count the little ones too. But it is nice to think, I bet there's, you know, I bet there's some people who are not eating animals, who are being born not eating animals, or who, uh, you know, who animals who aren't being eaten. I don't know. I struggle with that because is the global animal supply going down or up? It doesn't seem to be making well. It's a going big up. It's going up. Viral. Constantly yeah. goes up. Right. So, like, is it accurate to say? Well, I bet there are some animals who aren't being born because of it. Is it just going up because of the population going up? We have always said that any vegan can say that they make a dent, um, even though it may be a tiny dent. Like, in, and it's very hard to make a dent in a supply chain that that involves billions and billions of creatures. They're trying to sell us this stuff, these dead animals pretty hard and they they pay close attention so if we don't buy them and we encourage other people not to buy them maybe we reduce the supply a little bit i don't know but that's really i don't think you can think of it that way like you have to think of it as as being part of a movement that has the potential to at some point go viral um and so making that little incremental change can contribute to that and that's that's really a better way of thinking about it for me Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think we need to try and get this guy on the podcast. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him. He sounds like a hoot. I don't want to play naked croquet, though, which is apparently one of his hobbies. <laughs> but he's just, people love him. Like, he's very beloved. And I, I love that. Oh, no, he sounds like the loveliest person in the world. Yeah, they say he's just got uh, a really um, 
Tall and gentle, Mr. Knight comes across as clear-eyed and thoughtful, like a mashup of Bill Nye and Fred Rogers. While Mr. Knight may be against the creation of more humans, he shows great compassion for the ones that already exist. He just sounds like a delight. So I, not to keep belaboring the point, but I have a question. Do you think that this sort of mindset of his, like we're all fucked kind of thing, this mindset that went into starting this voluntary human extinction project has to do with the fact that he's a boomer? Because I can't really see a lot of Gen Z ascribing to this mentality. What do you think? I don't really know. I mean, boomers are usually like, everybody hates us. You know, it is true that in the 60s and 70s, there was a certain time period where people like took very imaginative approaches to life. And uh, his sound sounds like he was part of that. And he has followed it throughout. But boomers, everybody hates boomers. Don't you know that? I do know that. But you know, I'm Gen X, and I'm not sure that we're that much Nobody even oh, like notices you. No. <laughs> they they skip straight to millennials. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe if we have less on, we can ask that boomer question because I'm curious about it. And my guess is you'll be doing this interview, <laughs> but probably not while playing naked croquet. Chances are not, but you never know. Guy sounds pretty compelling. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our interview. After earning his PhD at UCLA in 2006, Peter Alagona completed his postdoctoral fellowships at Harvard and Stanford universities and is currently an associate professor of environmental science at University of California, Santa Barbara. He is the recipient of several awards, including a National Science Foundation career grant and is the author of more than three dozen publications in the areas of environmental history, geography, philosophy, and policy including After the Grizzly, Endangered Species, and the Politics of Place in California, and most recently, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Did you know that Dr. Bronner's is more than just soap? That's right. The ethical personal care company that we all know and love now makes chocolate, my favorite food group. And not just any old chocolate. In true Dr. Bronner's fashion, this chocolate exemplifies ethical chocolate excellence and is sourced from regenerative, organic, and fair trade supply chains. How cool is that? And speaking of cool, just in time for the holidays, they have released an all-new cool peppermint cream flavor. Oh, so good. I know when I think of Dr. Bronner's, peppermint is the first thing that comes to mind. So this is the perfect new addition to Magic All One Chocolate line, which already has several other chocolate flavors, including salted dark, roasted whole hazelnuts, crunchy hazelnut butter, salted whole almonds, salted almond butter, and smooth coconut praline. Yum. Now I want some chocolate, but when do I not want chocolate? What a great holiday gift these would make for your loved ones or for yourself, because treat yourself. Am I right? To find out more, go to www.drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to grab yourself some chocolatey holiday cheer. Welcome to our hen house, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you because as most of my listeners know, the topic of urban wildlife is one that 
I, I just find so interesting, troubling, and and just important because you know, as as most people do, I I love all those little animals hopping around, and it's one of the most moving things I think in all of our lives to see them and to to care about them. But your book has really shifted to some extent the way I think about it because I I tend to think of urban wildlife as animals who are sort of making do with the disaster we have made of their world. And, you know, they're just, well, not just getting by. Some of the, some of the squirrels seem pretty happy. They're just barely getting by in, in some ways. But you frame this whole topic in a much more positive light. And in, in many ways, you see a lot of these as animal success stories, don't you? And you're right. I think that, you know, traditionally in conservation and in conservation biology, people tend to look at urban areas as kind of agents of destruction you know, the expansion of cities as uh, one of the major processes that's resulting in habitat loss and the decline of many species and ecosystems. I think that's the traditional way to look at it. And, you know, it's certainly the way that I looked at it for many years uh, during the first part of my career where I was really focused on studying endangered species uh, in uh, the American West primarily, but throughout the United States and elsewhere. And seeing the results of, of uh, urban sprawl and urban development on, on native habitats and species. But for this book, I did try to focus on, on a different set of processes and to look at it in a different way. And I think that although for many species and probably the majority of, of native species in many ecosystems, the expansion of human-dominated areas like cities and industrial farms uh, is very much a negative for them and represents a loss of habitat. There are also a whole suite of others uh, for whom this presents some opportunities. And those others aren't just the ones we normally think about, like crows and pigeons and rats. There are also a variety of other species that have, in many ways, surprised conservationists and surprised ecologists uh, by the degree of their um, adaptability and by the ways in which they've adjusted to living in these kinds of environments. And so for this book, I wanted to focus on those stories and think about how some of those um, successes, if you want to put it that way, have happened and what they really mean for think about, thinking about cities going forward. Yeah, and there are some really surprising stories in here, but I want to start with the one that I mentioned and, and that isn't so surprising, an animal that we're all pretty used to, and that's the squirrel. I, you define them as the eastern gray squirrel. I guess that's what most of them are or all of them. I don't know. But this story totally blew my mind. I had no idea that squirrels were gone from cities for a real, and they they came back. But can you just tell that story? Because I was astounded. This is such a funny thing, you know. When I was working on this book and thinking of the stories that I could tell to exemplify some of the ideas and trends that I wanted to write about, I had no idea that the squirrel story was going to be one one of the ones that most resonated with readers. But in the time since the book has come out over the last six months or so, as I've spoken with people about this, they bring up the squirrel story over and over again. It's so <laughs> interesting to me that that is something that's resonated. And I think the reason is because we're so accustomed to seeing these animals in our, our uh, urban areas, in our cities, that it seems uh, almost uh, unbelievable that they weren't there. But, but they weren't for a long time. And so I think the squirrel story actually tells us a lot about the history of American cities. You know, early on uh, in the development of, of urban areas in North America, uh, well, first of all, something really important to recognize is that in North America, 
uh, European settlers tended to locate their cities, the places that became the largest, most prosperous urban areas, in some of the richest biological and ecological environments. And there were really two reasons for that. One is that they were close to a lot of resources, including access for transportation, uh, but also natural resources to harvest. And then a second reason was that those were the sites of the biggest and most prosperous indigenous communities as well. And so cities tended to sprout up there. And so Los Angeles, New York, other places are, are examples um, uh, certainly of that. But then, you know, pretty shortly after that, a lot of areas around cities were sort of cleared of a lot of their native wildlife as people harvested resources, hunted animals, uh, and cleared uh, forests, for example, for, for farms uh, and other land uses. And so early on in the history of cities like New York and Philadelphia and Boston, they were surrounded by areas that had been deforested and developed as farms. And they had very little, very few trees and no real official, at least public parks. And so these were not areas that were conducive to animals like squirrels, which require forested habitats. In addition, eastern gray squirrels in particular were hunted as pests for food uh, and also for their fur. And so these animals were hunted out of many of the eastern woodlands uh, where they used to live and where they now live again. And so it wasn't until the really until the 19th century uh, when people started to bring them back and reintroduce them to some of these areas. And also when people started to plant trees in cities and create parks and then plant trees in those parks and along uh, thoroughfares, that you started to get the kind of leafy urban environments that could actually support these reintroduced populations uh, of squirrels. And so although eastern gray squirrels were a native species, they were lost in many of these areas uh, for, for many decades and then were only brought back through reintroductions and also through uh, tree planting programs and uh, programs that established parks in our cities. And so this is a story in part about squirrels, but it's also a story in part about the development of American cities and the urban landscapes that we have today. I find that fascinating. So I'm glad I'm glad a lot of other people do, too. And. I mean, one of the points that you make is a lot of this, this, it wasn't, it's not just squirrels. I mean, one of the, one of the stories that really, you know, stuck in my mind was, was talking about the movie Bambi, which came out in 1942. I didn't realize it was quite that old. So it was quite a while ago. And kind of the theme was that those animals, and we all remember, I think most of us remember who were the animals in Bambi. I mean, obviously deer, but also, you know, rabbits and, and, um, and other fairly common animals. Like at the time Bambi was made, even they weren't really that common. And the whole theme of the movie was we have to disappear deeper into the forest to get away from it. That's exactly the opposite of what they did. They they just decided to to hang out with us, and not because we we did we did anything to encourage them really, but just because a lot of other things that we did made the cities good places for them to thrive and. Most of this didn't happen because of human intervention. You mentioned squirrels were reintroduced, but I think that you also point out in the book that that it also just happened kind of in spite of us because of other things we did uh, that made habitat useful for them. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that really is right. So the the story about Bambi is a, is a really fun and fascinating one. You know, it is we don't think of it as a World War II movie, but it really is in a lot of ways because it hits on a lot of themes that were very much um, of concern uh, to people at that time, including the, um, the survival of the nuclear family at a time when 
so many men were, were fighting abroad and also also women were working on the home front. And so there are lots of themes of Bambi that are, are very much resonant in the in a social way. But in terms of the animals themselves, you're you're absolutely right. The most famous line of this movie is when the great prince of the forest, this regal buck, Bambi's father, says, It is man, we must go deep into the forest. Uh, but in the years that followed that, basically the entire cast of Bambi, and not just white-tailed deer, uh, but also, as you point out, owls and skunks uh, and, and other animals that appear, uh, rabbits, <laughs> that appear. Yes, Thumper. Thumper. Exactly I remember right. his name. <laughs> That's exactly right. Started to show up uh, in cities in a way that they hadn't in previous decades. So why did this happen? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One reason that's, a, that's really, really important is that in the 19th century, uh, many of these species, and even going back further than that, many of these species have been driven to very low population levels through a combination of habitat loss, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, due to the loss of forest habitats, for example, uh, and other natural habitats, meadows and others, uh, but also unregulated hunting. And so in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as an effort to, to bring these species back to try to provide sustainable resources for people to harvest, food resources, fur resources, um, and others, uh, conservation measures were put in place in rural areas that turned out to be really, really successful. These conservation members were, uh, measures were already starting to show um, a lot of results by the time Bambi was produced and released as a film in 1942. And so although Bambi, you know, the message of Bambi is to go deeper into the forest to avoid man, to seek out natural habitats, uh, these creatures were at that point already proliferating in urban areas, or sorry, in rural areas around cities in ways that eventually allowed them to move into more urban areas over time and to colonize, for example, leafy suburbs that developed after World War II. And so this process of, on the one hand, implementing conservation measures in rural areas to try to recover species, while at the same time, reforesting some areas, the abandonment of some farms, and then the planting of trees uh, and other kind of leafy, uh, green, verdant environments in cities, enabled this all to happen. And so in a way, although Walt Disney tells these creatures to go deeper into the forest, over the few decades after Bambi's release, they in some ways did the exact opposite thing and they went deeper into the city. Urban planners just didn't plan for animals, right? Like this is this all just happened because of the animals. They decided, certain animals decided cities were actually a good place to be. But at the same time, you point out, and I think this is a hugely important point, that urban environments can be good for the species, but can be pretty tough on the individuals. And that's something that I think all of us would like to think about how to make better. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So so let me address that, that first point first, because I think it's really, really important. Decisions to plant trees, for example, in cities or to establish parks, those decisions were not made. Those designs were not developed and implemented. Uh, in order to bring wildlife back. Those parks were established, those trees were planted, those campaigns were launched, largely beginning in the mid-19th century, as a way to try to make urban areas, Victorian cities, uh, more livable, uh, calmer, <laughs> more conducive to civic life for people. Those were measures that were taken for people. So when 
famous uh, urban thinkers or landscape architects like Frederick Law Olmsted developed their plans for parks and parkways like Central Park and other areas. They were doing this not to create wildlife habitat. They were doing it really to create human habitat, to make these places more livable for people. It turned out that much later, these animals returned to cities or came to cities in the first time, in part because of the habitats that had been created through those programs, which were really designed for people. There's another element of this story that's really important and maybe of, of great interest to your, your listeners here, which is that during the, the 18th and 19th centuries, cities in the United States and Europe had a lot of animals in them. They were just domesticated and feral animals. So cities, Victorian cities in the United States, for example, early Victorian cities and in Europe, had lots of horses and pigs and other kinds of cows, other kinds of domesticated animals, as well as lots of feral or semi-feral dogs and cats uh, and other sorts of uh, uh, domesticated uh, creatures. These were moved out of cities during the late Victorian era and the late 19th and early 20th centuries, largely either into more uh, rural areas with farm animals or into people's homes and under their control more through things like leash laws, uh, for example, for, for dogs and the establishment uh, of, of groups that, that would, uh, for example, try to bring uh, cats and dogs off the streets uh, uh, and into homes uh, so that they could be adopted. And so um, there's this great transformation that went on from cities that were dominated by domesticated and feral animals to cities that had very few animals in them at all, really, uh, to cities that then were re kind of recolonized by, by wild creatures. And so that's a really important kind of historical trajectory that, that um, is, is worth remembering when we think about what enabled some creatures to come back to cities in the 20th century, some wild creatures. But this other point that you make, I think, is also crucially important, which is that cities often provide uh, a glut of resources. They provide water year-round, which is particularly important in arid regions where, you know, like where I live in Southern California, where there's very little standing water out in the environment. They provide lots of different kinds of foods. They provide shelter. Cities are relatively warm during the winter compared to uh, uh, other outlying areas because of the urban heat island effect. They tend to be a little bit wetter, not just because of irrigation, but because they tend to get a little bit more rain from cloud seeding, from dust that's in the atmosphere uh, when storms come in. And so cities create these environments that are in some ways more conducive for animals to, to succeed in terms of their population, so to procreate more, to be more fertile. But just because populations are more fertile, they're reproducing at a greater rate, doesn't mean that life is easier for individual animals. So take an example like black bears, uh, uh, which have colonized many, uh, not only mountain towns, but the peripheries of, of cities throughout uh, much of the country now, which has been a surprise to many people over the last several decades. Uh, black bears tend to do really well uh, around cities as a population because they tend to be able to access resources that people provide in those areas, uh, like water and food. Uh, but individual black bears tend to get in trouble and tend to die uh, at younger ages in urban areas, uh, in part because, uh, for example, they're exposed to toxins in the environment. 
Uh, they're exposed to diseases from being close to one another, but also things that they can get from some of the food they're eating. And of course, they're exposed to injury or even death from being hit by cars on roads, which is a major source of mortality for bears around many urban areas. Although the populations of these animals might be quite large, individual creatures often are experiencing a much greater risk of disease or death at a younger age in these urban environments. And so this is something that's really uh, the subject of a lot of research right now, and ecologists and wildlife biologists are still really, really understanding as we can get a better sense of what these creatures are doing seems like there's enormous work to be done. and But also the thing I, I really liked about this perspective is that there probably are things we can do to make their lives easier. Like now that we recognize that they they belong, we're not supposed to get rid of them. We're supposed to learn to live with them, or at least that's that's the goal. You mentioned black bears. And one of the sources of injury that you didn't mention, but I live I live in New York State, which is near New Jersey, and the black bear hunt every year is a you know huge cause. And they get hunted. And I, you, the other animal you mentioned were uh, what you call in California pumas. But I think most most of the country either calls them cougars or mountain lions. But they're all the same animal, I understand. These animals are, I mean, particularly pumas, but also black bear, potentially dangerous. So where does that line get drawn when these animals are able to come into city or at least suburban habitats? And is there a way to live with them? So traditionally in wildlife management, the way to, to manage populations of animals is to do it through habitat conservation and also hunting. If you establish uh, an animal as a game population, then you can, in theory, manage that game population in part by releasing hunting tags uh, and a certain number of animals can be taken during the season. This approach has proven um, increasingly controversial in some areas and for some species, including bears. It's not as controversial, for example, in some places as, as others. So it's not as controversial to hunt black bears in Alaska as it is in New Jersey, even though New Jersey has a higher density of black bears. But also, in addition, some of those traditional approaches, like releasing hunting tags, don't really work very well in urbanized regions where hunting is really, really not feasible. You know, many cities, most cities, uh, have laws against discharging firearms within their boundaries can be quite dangerous. Bow hunting is another uh, thing that people do that can be done in urban areas, but that can also be quite dangerous because it usually does not result in the immediate death of an animal. So then you have a creature that is wounded, uh, scared, running around in a, in a potentially populated area. And so some of the traditional tools of wildlife management that were really designed to manage populations as a whole in rural areas are proving not very well suited to, to managing populations or also animals that people see as individuals that they know individually in more populated urban areas. So that's a really important thing to, to note. Um, and it's going to require wildlife managers, scientists, ecologists, I think, to, to think pretty differently about, about these creatures in those places in the future. The issue of coexistence is incredibly important because, um, you know, conservation can only uh, go, go so far. We need to think about living in terms of hunting and other kinds of management approaches. But we also need to think about just how we can better live with these creatures in our midst. People in general really like bears uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. People have pretty positive views of them. But not everybody wants bears in their backyard, right? It can be problematic, it can be inconvenient, it can right. be dangerous, right? 
They're a little scary. If hunting is not as much of an option and people don't want bears generally to be removed from neighborhoods lethally, then the best thing that we can do is to really come together and think about how we're managing our urban habitats. Are we managing urban areas as a community in a way that's drawing these creatures in? And if we're doing that, then what are some of the things we can do maybe to prevent that? So are we allowing them to get at our trash cans? If we're doing that, then we might want to think as communities, which many communities are doing now, about providing better food storage options and better waste storage options for people in areas where black bears are coming. And so this is a measure to protect communities against the threat of potentially having these animals around, which could be dangerous. Uh, rarely is actually, but could be under certain certain unusual circumstances. But even more to protect the bears. Most of the bears that die, 80% of the grizzly bears that die in the lower 48 U.S. states are killed by people. People very rarely get attacked by grizzly bears, even though you hear about that in the news every single time it happens. And so the, the, the risks are disproportionate here. Really what we're talking about is largely protecting these animals. That's really what coexistence is about. And doing that might require us to think differently about how we think about the habitats that we live in and the ones that we share. I thought it was interesting how you pointed out, particularly for bears, black bears, a lot of those lessons can be taken and are hopefully being learned from from what happened in the parks, the national parks, where bears used to be enticed with human food as an a source of entertainment. And then people kind of figured out this was all a bad idea. It takes us a long time, doesn't it, to figure out how badly we're dealing with animals. But those lessons are kind of now being imported into trying to manage suburban bears. It, it does. And, you know, if you look at a place like Yosemite, if you look at the history of that place, during the years when people were feeding bears, when the park was feeding bears as a tourist attraction, this resulted in a tremendous number of conflicts. So that by the 1980s and 90s, you had bears all, all over the place, raiding cabins, ripping the doors off of cars, stealing coolers, doing all this stuff, doing the things that, that people had basically trained them to do over the years. And it took a, a long time for, uh, for those parks to really walk that path. But through investments in things like law enforcement, education, uh, proper food storage, these sorts of investments, those parks, parks like Yosemite, were able to really bring that under control so that the number of bear-related conflicts in Yosemite National Park has declined last I heard, last I checked, by more than 95% since their high in the 1990s. And so this shows that these things can be done. Bears can be trained to go for food. Bears that are trained to go for food can rarely be untrained. But new generations of bears that come along don't have to fall into that same trap. A fed bear is oftentimes a dead bear. This is something that you see in the parks. This is the message that's going out. And so if people in communities that increasingly have black bears, want to be able to live with them, the best thing that they can do is prevent them from getting into human food. That is a way of managing our shared habitat. Let me say one other thing. We often focus on animals like bears and pumas, the ones that we perceive as being dangerous to us, as potential threats uh, in shared habitats. The truth is that bears very rarely get into direct physical conflicts with people. It is extraordinarily rare. And pumas, even less so, right? Extremely, extremely rare. As a matter of fact, pumas, mountain lions, cougars, they go by many names, avoid people like the plague, pretty much. They try to stay as far away from us uh, as they can. And uh, as a matter of fact, 
Although this may be hard for folks to wrap their minds around, there is a small but increasing body of research that suggests that in many communities, having mountain lions around makes you safer. How does that happen? Think of communities like in the northeastern portion of the United States, where there used to be cougars. Cougars, mountain lions, were driven out decades ago, but now we have very large populations of white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer are extremely dangerous to people in many communities because of the number of car accidents that are associated with these animals that are threats to people's property and also sometimes physical threats or even threats to their, their lives. Mountain lions in many areas of North America are specialist hunters. They eat primarily deer. In California, about 90% of mountain lions' diet, 90% of their nutrition or more comes from deer. There have been studies, modeling studies, that have looked at a variety of different factors related to this and that have come up with the conclusion that in many cases, especially in areas where there are large populations of deer, having more mountain lions around reduces the risks associated with having wildlife overall in those communities. Again, this is a hard thing for folks to wrap their minds around, but we're starting to learn that living with some of these top predators actually can make us safer and can make our communities healthier. They can reduce the prevalence of car accidents and they can reduce the prevalence even of diseases as well. I'm a little nervous to ask this because I don't think this was in the book. We might be trading into territory that gets a little emotional. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. A lot of the arguments for hunting of white-tailed deer really focus on, well, there are no predators anymore. So we have to take the place of those predators. And it doesn't seem to have worked one iota because, uh, you know, uh, hunting does not control the population of white-tailed deer. And I'll just mention for my listeners that I recognize that all of this is a tragedy and I would like I would like to see white-tailed deer live out their lives just happily. But we have to face the fact sometimes that we live on a planet that is a fucking tragedy in so many ways. Beautiful, but tragic in so many ways for so many animals. All right, I'm really digressing now. But to get back to my question, is that a legitimate argument in favor of hunting? Because it certainly doesn't seem to do the job that predators do in having a balanced population. Because there's lots of hunting, but there's also like huge, huge populations of white-tailed deer that have grown since I was a kid, I mean, I'm pretty old, but when I was a kid, like there were no Canada, Canada geese flew over twice a year and it was really exciting. And, you know, maybe once in your life you saw a deer. It's really has happened in a fairly short amount of time. So anyway, that was a confusing question, but can you, can you figure it out and address it anyway? Yeah. So hunting is often presented as a way of managing populations. And in the past, in some cases, it has been used um, effectively to do so to create sustainable populations that are at the level that people can, can live with and that also provide that, th that animal population as a resource. Traditionally, wildlife managers going back to the 1930s have tried to frame wildlife populations as resources like trees, for example, that can be harvested, right? Uh, and it should be maintained at sustainable populations. That view has come under increasing strain in some parts of the United States for a variety of reasons. One is that the number of hunters um, has pretty much flatlined over time while the population has gone way up, which means that there are a lot of demands for conservation that are not being supplied simply by the revenue generated by hunting. 
the urbanization of the population and the fact that there are so many creatures in urban areas. As I said before, hunting is not really a viable solution there. Changing attitudes about hunting, for, particularly for animals like bears, has really challenged some of the traditional approaches. And then even within the agencies themselves, new generations of people are looking at these issues very differently. It's not the old traditional kind of hook and bullet approach to conservation that existed back in the day. This varies from state to state. These policies are generally set at the state level. And so uh, in a place like New Jersey, as I said, the conversation is different maybe than even in a place next door like Pennsylvania uh, about these issues. And so it varies from place to place. I guess one thing I'll I'll say is that um, over time, I see a trend in moving away from thinking of animals, wild animal populations, simply as resources to be harvested for for the benefit or enjoyment of people to providing a much wider range of benefits for people, for ecosystems, and for themselves. And so that is a process that has been going on now for um, at least a couple of few generations, and I think will will continue in the future. The question is, with that, as that process moves forward, as people start to think about these creatures differently, then what are the different approaches that we need to put in place in order to live with them? I think one approach that we mentioned a few minutes ago is thinking more seriously about how we manage our own habitats so that we can live with these creatures so that we're not creating artificially large populations of black bears, for example, that then result in a lot of harm to individual bears within those populations. And I think that the restoration, some call it rewilding, of lost species, including top carnivores, top predators in many ecosystems is absolutely essential. People can live with these creatures and actually get a bunch of benefits from living with these creatures if we bring them back to our communities in thoughtful ways over time and adjust to that. One of the other projects that I'm that I am working on, my main project right now actually, in addition to this urban wildlife work, is thinking about bringing brown bears, bringing grizzlies back to California They've been extinct here, considered extinct for almost a century, about 90, 98 or 99 years here in the state now. And it seems like this is something we could definitely do. We've reintroduced a lot of other species. And it's really, it turns out, it's not impossible, as folks have been saying for a long time. It's really just a choice. And so having this conversation, moving in these directions, thinking about the benefits that these creatures can provide, I think is a direction that we're going. I think we're actually accelerating in that direction in many parts of the country. And I think it's something that's going to provide a wide range of benefits, including benefits to people who who enjoy hunting some of these populations of deer, for example, that really, you know, are are doing what they like to do now in an environment that's incredibly artificial and not nearly as as interesting or engaging as it used to be. Hunting a white-tailed deer that's sitting on a suburban lawn acting like a cow, to be perfectly honest, is not much of a challenge. And I think a lot of hunters recognize that. It's not particularly fair or interesting, uh, and it doesn't particularly do a lot for the ecosystem. Well, there are those hunters, and then there are, there, and there are the many other hunters who just like to go out and kill things. There's a wide range of viewpoints among hunters, as far as I can figure out. I'm really heartened by the ideas that you're putting forward. I, I, I'm really glad to hear that this is happening. I just see white-tailed deer, Canada geese, as I mentioned, raccoons also, all of these animals who get along well with us, like the animals that, that do well with us, we, we tend to start to hate them. 
we love the animals who like we're driving to the edge of extinction or who are already gone. Those are beloved. But the ones who 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 get along well are not popular. Uh, you even pointed to one instance, a town, I think it was in Alaska, where bald eagles were considered pests, which, you know, I guess any animal can be a pest if they do well enough around you. But do you do see a shift to that mindset in the general public that that these animals aren't being seen just as pests? I was in Alaska last month and I heard a number of people call bald eagles a variety of names, including trash birds and other names, which is something that would be, I think, quite surprising to a lot of people who, who don't live in that part of the country. But maybe incre- an increasing sentiment as, as bald eagles do very well now uh, in, in large parts of the rest of the country outside Alaska. You know, there was a great uh, paper published, uh, peer-reviewed uh, academic paper published years ago it's something like the tragedy of becoming common. So a play on the tragedy of the commons idea. And it was talking about changing attitudes toward, toward animals as they become more common in human-dominated environments. What I would say is, is this. For creatures that are doing very well, or uh, perhaps inordinately well, in some human-dominated environments, the idea that people have that they're somehow dirty, that they're uh, somehow pests, that's an idea that is really kind of a projection. What these animals are doing is they're showing us things about ourselves and our society that we don't really care to see. And so we don't like them for doing that. Several years ago, there was this video that appeared on YouTube, Pizza Rat. Of course. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. This viral thing. And it was a short video that someone took of a rat dragging a giant slice of extra thin New York pizza pizza pie down a, a, a series of subway stairs. People think, oh, this is gross, this is disgusting, it went viral. But what's happening there? I mean, this is an animal that's harvesting refuse left behind by people. And has very good taste. That's right. That's that is right. a delicious that's, piece of food. That, that's right. I mean, that's a nutrition <laughs> bomb. I mean, that could feed a family of rats for a week. What we're saying is that there are things about humanity and human society that we don't like that are manifesting in these animals, that these animals are revealing to us. And so what's the response to that? Well, a lot of people's response is to punish the animals for it. I don't think that that's particularly fair. What I would rather see is us looking at what those animals are showing us and then changing the way that we act, the way that we treat our ecosystem, the way that we, for example, consume and dispose of food uh, in ways that would alter our ecosystem for the benefit of all humans and non-humans alike. I think that that is really more where we need to go. I love that idea. I, I hope we get there. Researchers have been looking uh, over the last decade or so at what are some of the shared qualities that enable creatures from a variety of different taxonomic groups to succeed. So there are a lot of theories put forward. Some of those theories turn out to be um, not very useful, but some of them um, are, are starting to, to have some evidence associated with them over time. If you look at creatures that do really well in urban environments, what we call urban exploiters, creatures that are very abundant in urban environments, they tend to have a few characteristics in common. Some of them are relatively long-lived, not all of them, but they tend to have cultures. In other words, they learn lessons, they experiment with new things, and then they teach their young, they care for their young and teach their young these lessons. They tend to do relatively well around large numbers of their own species. They tend to be omnivores. There's an idea that they tend to be relatively large-brained compared to other uh, species within their same taxonomic group, which tends to be associated with omnivory and also experimentation and caring for young. So anyway, there, there are these suite of characteristics. 
So if you add these all up together, caring for young, being relatively comfortable around large numbers of your own group, being omnivores, being relatively large brain, what does that sound like? Us? Yeah, that sounds like us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There are probably a lot of your listeners out there who don't want to be told that they're a lot like rats or pigeons. Oh, my listeners would be fine with that. (laughs) But there are reasons that we use rats as model organisms for biomedical research, right? They do have some qualities that are similar to us, but they're just different enough that we we feel like we can experiment on them. So what I'm saying here is that a lot of the creatures that do well in the habitats that we create actually have fundamental biological qualities that are surprisingly similar to our own. I like animals probably as much as anyone. I'm pretty high on that scale, but I don't want mice in my house and I don't want rats in my house, you know, like, and on a much larger scale, there are animals that we have to do something about (laughs) more. Maybe not everybody does, but, but most of us feel we have to do something about. But then there's enormous... As you point out, there's just such easy ways to control other quote unquote pests like, you know, putting a good lid on your garbage can would be one good place to start, whether it's for bears or raccoons or whoever is bothering you. So what would you say are the most fundamental approaches to to both the animals who we find it very hard to live with and the animals who maybe we just need to make a few a few tweaks uh, to our lives to get along with better? What's the range of solutions that people should be putting into place? Honestly, I think that there's one overarching principle, and then there are a variety of different implementations of that. So the overarching principle is just to be thoughtful. You know, if you are going to, if you are fortunate enough to have a home, and you are thinking about landscaping your yard, how do you want to do that? If you are driving down a country road, You know, do you really want to go 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, knowing that that's an area where animals cross back and forth? Or do you want to think about maybe going a little slower, the speed limit, right? Just be thoughtful about what you do. I've been struggling a little bit in recent weeks because I have at least one mole in my garden. And I have this garden that I love and that I'm, I'm proud of and that I cultivate. And now I have a mole in it. You know, I've been advised to try to kill the mole. Instead, it turns out that there are other approaches that I can use by doing a little bit of research that can probably maybe deter the mole, send the mole into to somewhere else, to some of the woodlands, not too far from my house, hopefully, as opposed to living in my garden. And so being thoughtful and really just kind of thinking through what you're doing and thinking that so many things that we do in our daily lives actually have some consequence for the creatures that we share our space with. And so if we're kind of constantly thinking about, oh, well, how might this affect the other beings that I'm sharing my habitat with, then that's the kind of basic principle. But, you know, in terms of implementation, I think that we can think about this on two different levels. One level is the individual level, and the other is the community. On the individual level, things that I said, like how you drive, the kind of plants that you plant in your yard, the way you use water, uh, these sorts of things, these individual kind of decisions, the way you dispose of your food, uh, you know, all of those things really do add up. They really do matter on an individual level. But as individuals, We can't just transform the habitat on our own. We need to do it as a community. And I'm about to tell you something that may sound extremely boring, but is very, very, very important. In the United States, as a result of a long history, the way that we do land use planning is, in general, at the county level. We have something called county general plans. The counties come together throughout the country. They develop general plans. And these general plans have a variety of different elements. There's a transportation element, a housing element, 
an education element, a parks and recreation element, maybe a flood control element. All of these are aspects of county general plans. County general plans get produced in part through input and participation by people who live in the community. What I'm recommending for people who really want to get involved in this is to start engaging in those processes in a way that gets people at each of those elements, housing, education, transportation, parks, flood control, to start thinking just a little bit more about wildlife, about habitat, and about cities as ecosystems. If we can start doing that, and this is a hard thing because counties are often stressed for resources, for time, for money. The last thing they want to do is to have to think about a whole bunch of other issues. But if as communities, we can come together and start to say, you know, how does this transportation plan affect wildlife in my community? How does this parks plan address issues having to do with habitat and habitat connectivity? If we can start to do a little bit more of that, then what we can do is start to move our cities to places from accidental ecosystems, which is really what this book is about, to more intentional ecosystems. What are the ecosystems that we want to produce? What do we want our cities to look like in the future? We can do a little bit of that as individuals, but a lot of it just comes down to participating in those local processes, those local planning processes that really will determine, sometimes in a very mundane way and over time, but really will determine the kinds of habitats we all live in in the future. That is such an excellent point. And and it does really seem, I mean, your book was was shocking to me. And, you know, I read about animals a lot, but how how cities really have become ecosystems. And I'm sure there's a lot of information that can be offered. I mean, I'm sure people are just really not thinking in these terms, but is it, the minute you start thinking in these terms, it's obviously true, especially when you find out, as I started the interview of, that there didn't used to be any squirrels around, and now there are squirrels everywhere, and so many other animals as well who are making cities their home. I wish I could keep you longer, but we've gone a long time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with one like bigger picture question on the same thing. Is this particularly important in this era of climate devastation when we really don't know what's going to happen to any of our ecosystems? It seems to me like preserving these habitats that our cities have become for animals who seem actually like they have the potential to make it through all of the things that we're doing to the world uh, is particularly valuable. Do you see that as a, and of course you ended the book with discussing um, how animals kind of came, came alive during COVID and how, uh, how that particular crisis showed how important these animals are and how many of them there are right in or right next to our cities. So is climate another crisis coming that, that it makes it especially important to like look at raccoons and remember a lot of other animals might not make it. So these animals are more important even than we realized. That was a lo- another long question. I don't know. You, you inspire me to long questions. <laughs> there, there's so much good stuff there. In terms of COVID, it turns out that this uh, flush, this, this proliferation of observations of wild, urban wildlife in the very early days of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, turns out that there's some of that turns out to have been true. Uh, wild animals were kind of doing different things in some cases, but a lot of it turns out to be people opening their eyes and, you know, sitting at home and looking out their windows kind of bored to death or wondering what was going to happen next and seeing things that they hadn't really seen before, but that had been developing for decades. And so that's part of the story of this book. And so opening our eyes, you know, taking the time to do that is is really one of the first steps here, I think. But to your larger point, 
I think that particularly in the United States, but in some other parts of the world as well, we have been schooled to believe that there are natural areas and then there are human or kind of cultural areas. Cities are the areas that are the domains of people and culture. And then if we want to experience nature, we go to something like a national park or to a beautiful countryside or a vacation area, something like that. I think that what this story says is that that distinction is not really valid. That nature is not just a place or a thing. It's a process. And it's a process that's happening all over, including the places where most of us live and work. About 82% of Americans, according to the U.S. Census, now live in urban areas. Most of us live in some kind of a city or town. But these cities and towns are becoming much more uh, recognizable as ecosystems as time progresses. And so what I would say is that this story uh, about urban ecosystems is in no way uh, an attempt to draw attention from the crucial job of protecting more natural areas like national parks and wilderness areas and these other sorts of places that are absolutely essential for wildlife, for ecosystems, for climate change resilience, and, and for people as well. But what it is, is it's a call to represent the, or to, to understand the places that we often represent as not being nature as actually being ecosystems too. And so cities, I think, should be added to that understanding of the natural world added to our definition of habitat, should be studied in depth, and that we should really be thinking about managing urban ecosystems for their improvement in the same way that we think about managing national parks and wilderness areas to maintain those special places as sites where we can go to and experience other forms of wild nature. I think that cities are refuges for some creatures, but they're also the essential habitats for the majority of humanity, and I think that we need to start thinking of them as such. We can do that, and we can move towards greener, cleaner, and more sustainable habitats, and hopefully ones that are more just uh, for a diversity of humans as well. That's a really fine place to leave this conversation. It could go on for quite a while, because we still haven't talked about coyotes or bats or all of the exotic animals floating around floor. All of these stories were so interesting, so many interesting stories in it's the Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities by Peter Alagona. Thanks so much for joining us today, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from my favorite commentator. That's Rick Berman the executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom, writing on meetingplace.com. Don't let success breed complacency. And he starts off crowing about all of the recent successes of the meat industry, but points out success is fleeting. Currently, many in ag might be feeling pretty good. Fake meat company Beyond Meat is laying off 20% of its staff. McDonald's stood up to HSUS and kicked a shareholder resolution to the curb. 
Meanwhile, there is a good chance the Supreme Court will overturn or delay implementation of California Prop 12, an animal rights law attempting to impose animal husbandry standards nationwide, which, of course, it's not, but I'm not going to point to that now. You already know that. So, you know, he, he understands that after years of suffering these kind of smear campaigns and COVID disruptions, that, that people in the industry would be feeling good about the way all of these quote-unquote successes. But he points out, and this is where, as this so often happens, I totally agree with him, it's easy to overreact. Many farmers see Beyond Meat stock falling and wrongly extrapolate that the market for fake meat is crashing. And like me, he doesn't think that's the case. He points out that the buzz around fake meat taking off was largely media-driven. You know, like this is what we've been talking about for a while now. Yeah, like it it made a big splash when it first hit. And then, you know, everybody bought it and the, then things died down. And, and I always liken it to the, the early days of the internet where a million companies were founded and the only one that's left is Amazon. But Amazon is kind of successful, you could say. And he points out, bringing sky-high stock valuation of one company back to earth only reflects the original reality of a new product having an evolutionary versus revolutionary impact on the market they seek to dominate. I love that line. Uh, isn't it the truth? This is uh, going to be evolutionary, step by step, not going to happen all at once, but it's happening. And he agrees. He points out in 2021 alone, $5 billion was invested in fake meat companies. A lot of the big companies are, are, you know, big meat companies are getting into the game. His real concern here is that there hasn't been any real challenges to the narrative that real meat is bad for your health and the environment. Maybe that's because they're right. <laughs> Maybe that's why there's not a lot of pushback. And then he also looks at Europe. A majority of consumers surveyed in France, Spain, and Germany believe an alternative to conventional animal agriculture needs to be found. Like, why don't American consumers recognize that? I don't know. But for whatever reason, he agrees that uh, there's absolutely no reason to believe that that cultivated meat, aka fake meat, aka a million other things, is failing. And, you know, it had a big burst and there's there's been some retraction, but the future is, is to me, it's obvious. He doesn't think that will be the future because he thinks... He can make money by convincing the meat industry that they have to fight back. In the short term, he concludes, the infant fake meat industry has predictable problems. But look beyond the current horizon. There is a long growth runway and a growing acceptance happening below the radar. If favorable perceptions are left unchallenged, they will change behaviors. I love it. I love you, Rick. Anti-cockfighting legislation sounds good, but is it? Another hilarious if, if tragic article from Watt Agnet. This is by one Roy Graber. This is apparently a new bill that's in Congress. The article starts out by pointing out the promoted provisions of the legislation aren't at all concerning, but those who are behind it and how one promoter describes herself are. This is just so pathetic. I don't know whether that's the right word. These people, they're pointing out that there's this new bill, this is backed by um, Wayne Pacelli's uh, organization, uh, about cockfighting and dogfighting. They're trying to strengthen the Animal Welfare Act provisions regarding cockfighting and dogfighting. And the article points out that, you know, one of the major impetuses for this legislation and the way that might get it passed is because of the huge bird flu outbreak, which of course is spread by the industry. Uh, getting rid of cockfighting may help, but it's not going to help that much. But this guy received this this press release, 
And this is what uh, I'll just say what uh, the press release said this legislation would include banning simulcasting and gambling on animal fights in the United States, no matter where the fights and broadcasts originate. Well, that's certainly a good idea. Halting the shipment of mature roosters shipped through the U.S. mail. Can you believe I, I like I've heard of chicks being shipped through the mail, but I had no idea they shipped like big roosters in the mail, like in a box in the mail. Unbelievable. Creating a citizen suit provision to allow private right of action against illegal animal fighters and ease the resource burden on federal agencies. Well, yeah, that is a very, very great idea. Enhancing forfeiture provisions to include real property used in the commission of an animal fighting crime. Love it. And so does Roy. That all sounds well and good. And I want dogfighting and cockfighting to come to an end in the United States. But I am still a little apprehensive about this. So his point is that the legislation is good, but he doesn't like the legislators. There's only one agriculture committee member, and that is Cindy Axney, who's a lame duck uh, congresswoman from, from Iowa. She said this, as a lifelong animal rights activist, I will continue to working to ensure animals are treated with the dignity and respect they deserve. Well, I have no idea what her position is on other animal issues, but this was horrifying. She described herself as a, as a lifelong animal rights activist. This guy's point is that even if the legislation is good, if one of the legislators has described themselves as an animal rights activist, well, then we should vote against it. Anytime anyone in Congress refers to themselves as an animal rights activist, he says, and that person is able to get others to join them, it gets me a little nervous. Like, how cynical? Well, maybe cynical is the wrong word, too. I don't know exactly what the right word is. It's just so stupid. Um, and the fact that the, the press release had a quote from Wayne Baselli, who, you know, they all hate. Maybe I'm overreacting, but the way I see it, a connection has been made between Pacelli and members of Congress. So you never know what may come next. He also points out in this article that he hasn't read the actual bill. That's really helpful, Roy. <laughs> who needs to know? read the bill when somebody who supports it described themselves as an animal rights activist? That way, you know, you should be against it. All right. Finally, from MeetingPlace.com, uh, the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves, immortalized chicken. Can beef be far behind? He starts out, when is a chicken not a chicken? When it is immortalized, or so says Upside Foods, formerly known as Memphis Meats. And of course, he's referring to the fact that Upside uh, recently got FDA clearance for their slaughter-free, quote-unquote, chicken, you know, getting us one step closer to having lab-grown lab meat or cultivated meat, as we call it. They call it a million different things you know, in the grocery shop store, I, you know, and I know many of you are thinking, well, I don't really want it, but that's not the point. I don't want it either. I don't care about it, but I care about the fact that it will save billions of lives. Pandora's box, he points out, is opening wide as there will soon be other companies bringing cell cultivated. That's his new term. It's a lot closer to cultivated. Cell cultivated proteins to a restaurant or grocery store near you. Beef that's not beef may be next. Yeah pretty cool, right? He points out that that an article in the New York Times reports that the, the cell-cultivated chicken will receive confirmation from the USDA in the coming months. They have to have permission from both the FDA and the USDA. But the FDA, I think, is the big hurdle, at least according to the New York Times. So how, just how do you produce immortalized chicken? And I'm just going to read this whole um, section from Upside Foods' uh, website that he quotes, because it's interesting. 
In a nutshell, our production process starts by taking a sample of primary cells from a chicken or fertilized egg. From this sample, our team selects ideal cells for developing a commercial cell line. The winning cells are chosen based on their ability to produce high-quality meat and grow predictably and consistently. This process is called immortalization. I'd never heard that term before. Once a cell line is established, we're able to draw from it for years, if not decades, to come, reducing the need to take additional cell samples from animals. That was a question I had, I think on last week's podcast, we were talking about this. I didn't know whether they had to keep taking cells from an animal or whether they could make cells from the cells. And apparently they can make cells from the cells. So they don't have to keep taking. Well, it sounds like very occasionally they would have to take additional cell samples from animals. He likens it to sourdough. I just say, you know, it actually does sound pretty similar to that. He doesn't think that that this is going to happen in 2022, though, you know, some people seem to think it is, that it's going to happen really fast. His point is that the screeching sound you hear is from meat and poultry industry veterans' fingernails being dragged across the chalkboard, demonstrating their frustration with anything that describes a protein that is not from a live animal being FDA approved and thus to be labeled meat or poultry. Well, so what? (laughs) Like, that's a done deal, Max. Sorry. He seems to think it may not happen fast, but I think at this point, it's hard to believe it's not going to happen at all. It's just, uh, it's, it's on its way. He wants us to remember the first mover in a market usually reaps the most rewards if they are well financed and can withstand the inevitable downturns of any new product venture. Um, And he's likening them to uh, the plant-based companies, which, you know, like exactly like the other article was pointing out, that had a big boom and then really slowed. But, you know, they're not going out of business. And they both of these commentators are pointing out that that's a perfectly normal process for bringing a new product to the market. And it will probably happen with the cell-based ones as well. And or the cultivated, I'm supposed to call them cultivated cultivated meats as well. And, you know, the ones who are well-financed will survive. Hopefully that won't be just Tyson, which is also getting into this, uh, into this business. And I'd like to see Upside Foods uh, be the winner here. And it looks like, you know, they're well on their way there. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled, dollar for dollar, up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our Barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year-end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. 
Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st, and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beechler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.